Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today we are going to pick up where we left off with the episode about the birth of the PlayStation. And here is the story so far. I covered in that recent episode how Ken Kutaragi, the so-called father of the PlayStation, had to develop Sony's first video game console, essentially out of view of the company's board members, who were more keen on pursuing a collaboration with Nintendo at the time. But the Nintendo partnership never produced a consumer product, and I'm not even sure if there were ever any working prototypes that came out of this project, because Nintendo kind of killed it all off without ever making an official announcement about the program being canceled. Kutaragi was confident that Sony could build a CD-ROM-based video game system, as opposed to Nintendo's cartridge-based system, that would not just compete, but would outperform the competition. Now, it almost wasn't called the PlayStation, by the way. Kutaragi wanted to call it that. In fact, that was the name of the proposed Nintendo and Sony peripheral for the Super Nintendo, uh, though at that time, that version of the PlayStation was two words, PlayStation. And Kutaragi wanted to create a game console called PlayStation, one word, big P, big S. When Sony CEO Norio Oga gave the thumbs up, It was going to be called PlayStation. Sony had already even registered the name. Everything was ready to go. But as a courtesy, they brought the idea to the founder of Sony, Akio Morita. This is sort of a a very traditional approach in Japanese business. It was a sign of respect to the founder. Now, Morita loved the idea of the video game console. He liked the idea of getting into that industry. And everything was great, except he hated the name and he said that they should change it. So, reluctantly, they began to search for a new name. And then a couple of months later, Marita, sadly, suffered a severe stroke, and it was bad enough to keep him from returning to work. The team hadn't found a new name at that point, and everything was already ready to go under the PlayStation name, so Oga, the CEO, quietly kind of gave the go-ahead for them to stick with that name after all. One thing I didn't really cover in the previous episode was how Kutaragi came across to his superiors and his subordinates. Stubborn would probably be a good adjective to use. Traditional, another good adjective. Aggressive is another one. Shigeo Maruyama said in interviews that while he was a manager at the time and Kutaragi was an engineer at the time, Kutaragi would sometimes treat Shigeo like he was the subordinate. At one point, angry that Shigeo wasn't doing whatever it was that Kutaragi wanted done, Kutaragi said that Shigeo should quit. And according to Shigeo, who seemed pretty good-natured about the whole thing, Kutaragi was like a temperamental artist who didn't believe in apologizing, even if he knew he was the one in the wrong. So he's definitely a visionary, but he also sounds like the kind of guy I wouldn't really want to work with. Kutaragi also encountered issues when he tried to work with his counterparts in the United States. He was in charge of the Sony PlayStation project, a huge deal. However, that wasn't reflected in his official title, which was more or less like assistant manager. The business hierarchy in Japan is really rigid. Companies have strict rules in place that limit when someone could be even eligible to apply for a position with a larger title. So while Kutaragi was leading the PlayStation efforts and his decisions were the ones that completely guided the development of that console, his title was translated into assistant manager, essentially. And that meant that his U.S. counterparts weren't really listening to him. I mean, why would they? They were all executives, right? They had big, important titles. And now I should add, that does not necessarily reflect a person's capability or their wisdom or their knowledge or anything like that. But titles are sometimes seen as more important than those qualities because, well, because humans are silly creatures, I guess. Anyway, Kutaragi would eventually resort to using more grandiose titles in English on his business cards because his U.S. counterparts couldn't read his real title, which was printed in Japanese. So his real title would say assistant manager in Japanese, but he might have 
senior vice president or something listed as his title in English. And I include this story simply because it points out a cultural divide between Japan and the United States. And it's one that a lot of people have to figure out how to work around and through whenever they're producing collaborative projects. And it's not, you know, it's not an outlier. This is something that lots of companies deal with, but I thought it was an interesting story. In the United States, the PlayStation would debut at the very first Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3, way back in 1995 at E3 number one. Uh, Here in 2020, the latest E3 has been canceled, and there's a big question mark over the future of the, uh, the, the event and whether or not it will make a return in 2021. We don't know. But At uh, 1995's E3, the PlayStation made a huge impact, and it didn't hurt that it was up against some some kind of shaky competition. Uh, You had the extreme misfire on Nintendo's part, for example, the much maligned Virtual Boy. So the buzz about the PlayStation was really powerful leading up to its launch in the United States. It already launched in Japan at that point. Now, These days, we'd refer to that first PlayStation as being one of the consoles in the fifth generation of home video game consoles, and a word on that. It's a bit tricky to apply terms like generation to video game consoles, largely because each company has its own release dates, and some technologies overlap between generations. But generally speaking, the generation designation tends to apply to the capabilities of the consoles. The first generation included dedicated game systems like the Odyssey, you know, stuff where you could play Pong, and it was hard-coded on the hardware itself. In other words, you couldn't play other games. It was literally the game that was coded onto the circuitry of the console. The second generation of video game consoles included slightly more sophisticated game systems like the Atari 2600. These are game systems that could except things like cartridges. So you weren't stuck with that single title. You could actually switch that out by by pulling the cartridge out and putting a different cartridge in. The original Nintendo Entertainment System, or the Famicom as it was known in Japan, would belong to the third generation of video game consoles. That's also known as the 8-bit era. I talked about 8-bit and 16-bit in the last episode. The Super Nintendo and the consoles like the TurboGrafx-16 and Sega Genesis, in other words, the 16-bit systems, were in the fourth generation. And now that brings us up to the fifth generation where the PlayStation would belong, and that was the 32-bit era. Uh, Other consoles that belonged to that same generation included the Nintendo 64 and the Sega Saturn. Now, I mentioned at the end of the previous PlayStation episode that in North America in particular, there was a heavy emphasis on 3D graphics. In general, the evolution into the era of 3D graphics was one of the defining features for the fifth generation of video game consoles as a whole. Some systems, like the PlayStation, were in better shape when it came to a 3D graphics option. The CD-ROM drive allowed game developers to make bigger, more complicated games than they could on Nintendo's old cartridge-based 64. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not necessarily mean that games were automatically better on one system versus the other. I owned both a PS1 and an N64, and in general, I preferred the Nintendo console. But, to be fair, I didn't own a ton of games on either system, so my experience was really limited. I did have some killer games on the N64, like GoldenEye and some WCW and at the time old WWF wrestling games, also the extremely cheeky Conker's Bad Fur Day, things like that. And those won me over, over the PlayStation. But again, I didn't have a lot of PlayStation titles and I was definitely in the minority on this one. Now, let me be clear, the PlayStation has no shortage of great games. Far from it. It has an enormous game library. And that's thanks in large part to Sony's general practice of supporting a video game console even into the life cycle of its successor. I'll talk more about that in this episode. So it's not unusual to find new game titles coming out for a console that is a generation behind the most current console on the market. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One interesting behind-the-scenes fact about the PlayStation is how Sony CEO Norio Oga decided to position it from a company standpoint. Like, what division would it actually be produced under? He was worried that if the Sony Corporation was the sole producer 
of this. If it was under that label, then it wouldn't do very well because Sony wasn't known for video games. So he was worried that no one would pay attention. He actually designated it as a joint venture between the Sony Corporation, that is the main brand, and Sony Music. I mean, I guess the thing did have a CD-ROM drive, so you could play music CDs on it, so I suppose that's close enough. One huge advantage Sony had over Nintendo was because of Nintendo's stubborn insistence on sticking with that cartridge format. While cartridge-based games loaded faster and they were harder to pirate, they were also harder to produce. And they were a pain in the tuchus to make, in other words, if you were a developer. But developing a game for a CD-ROM-based system simplified things a lot. And so Sony attracted way more third-party developers to its platform. Nintendo was producing amazing first-party and second-party content, but found it more challenging to get third-party companies to sign on. This also meant that the Sony PlayStation would serve as the foundation for some exclusive agreements between Sony and various video game developers, or at least specific franchises. And those franchises would help define the console's place in video game history. That place, by the way, is pretty high up there. Oh, and Sony also acquired a game developer company of its own. It was a game company called Psygnosis, which was mostly famous for a series of games called Lemmings, where you try and lead a group of lemmings across a dangerous environment and you assign different uh, abilities to lemmings in order to get as many of them across as possible. It's an adorable strategy game, and I highly recommend you check it out if you've never played a Lemmings game. There's tons of them out there. Anyway, Psygnosis would become Sony Interactive Entertainment, which would become the internal video game developer division at Sony. Now, the PlayStation would go on to become the top-selling console for the fifth generation of consoles. It sold more than 300,000 units in the first 30 days with a 97% sell-through rate, meaning that Sony was selling nearly all of its inventory in stock. In fact, for a while, it held the title as the top-selling video game console of all time, and it was the first to hit 100 million units sold which isn't bad for a clandestine project that initially did not have the support of the company's board of directors. Kutaragi's ambition was not limited to creating a video game console, though. He told Shuji Utsumi, one of the engineers who worked on the design of the PlayStation, that his ultimate goal was to create not just a video game system, but an entire operating system upon which all sorts of stuff could be built. So he saw the console as a type of specialized computer and that developing for the console should be similar to developing for other personal computers. He said he wanted the PlayStation to be more modeled after Microsoft's approach to business rather than Nintendo's or Sega's. And keep in mind, Microsoft didn't have a console at this point. So he's really talking about the productivity approach. One thing that Sony did and that a lot of companies do was that they region locked video game consoles. So this means Sony would include some firmware in region specific models of the PlayStation. So a Japanese PlayStation console would have this coded into the firmware and a United States console would have a different region code coded into its hardware. And that would mean that you could only play the games that were produced and marketed for the region you were in or for the region that the console was from, but not for other regions. So if you were in the U.S. and you bought a U.S. PlayStation, you couldn't just get a copy of a Japanese title and slap it into your console and have it work. The games were region locked. So you'd be forced to either wait for the company to eventually produce an American localized version of whatever game you wanted to play, which might not ever happen, or give up. And this comes down to companies making bets on which games are going to work well within certain regions. And the prevailing philosophy is that due to cultural differences, some titles just will not appeal to certain audiences. So it's not worth the trouble to go through the development and localization to make a version for that region. Why do it if you're just going to waste money? No one's going to play it anyway. That's the, that's the philosophy. And there are a lot of Japanese RPG or role-playing games that fall into that category, and there is a healthy fan base for Japanese RPGs that are outside of Japan. A lot of people outside Japan love those games, and so they find it very frustrating when these games are region-locked. 
Now, manufacturers of cartridge-based systems could use the physical connectors between a cartridge and a console to do this. So they could make consoles for one region and the cartridges for that one region a specific size that will not fit into the consoles that are made for another region. So if you got a Japanese cartridge for a U.S. console, you wouldn't even be able to physically plug it in because they wouldn't match up. So that was something that cartridge makers could do. But CDs are universal, right? They can fit into any CD player. There's thankfully not a huge variation in sizes and shapes of CDs. There's a little variation, but not much. So typically you can take any CD and put it into any CD player, but it won't necessarily work because of that region locking I was talking about. Sony's solution was to create a special pit. So if you if you were to take a CD and take a microscope and look at the surface of a CD, you would see that that surface, the, the surface that the laser actually reads, has a series of bumps and pits in it. And that's actually where the data is. You know, that's the representation of those zeros and ones, that digital information. And this was a special pit that was... Uh, at a depth that was beyond what a typical laser burner could do. So if you had a consumer-grade CD burner, it would not be able to make a pit of this particular size on the CD. And that meant that uh, you could encode things on CDs that could be picked up by specific region-locked consoles, and it wouldn't allow things to play. So if you put a Japanese CD into an American console, the location of that pit would give away that it wasn't the right kind of CD for that console and it wouldn't play for you. So it was a way of preventing people from playing. It was also kind of a copy protection approach. So they did make a small tactical error with this particular strategy. And by that, I mean a huge tactical error. I'll explain more in a moment, but first let's take a quick break. So what was that error that Sony made? You know, they had created this region locking copy protection system. It was reliant upon the pit on a CD and uh, a special region locked key that's hard coded into the consoles. Well, what Sony did was they included in the original PlayStation a pair of parallel input output ports. And these were ports that were meant to serve as a way to connect peripherals to the PlayStation. The idea being that further down the line, Sony might create something that would uh, augment the PlayStation's abilities in some way, but you'd have to connect it to the system somehow. And the way you would do it is through one of these ports. Now, not a lot of official Sony peripherals were ever actually produced, but some were pitched, like a VCD player, uh, VCDs are video compression discs. You can think of them as sort of a predecessor to DVDs. They're essentially video CDs. But for you to store video on a CD, you really have to compress it or it has to be super short because the CD has a limited amount of data it can hold and video takes up a lot of data. So typically you end up with video that's compressed so much that the quality is not exactly spectacular. Anyway, the only PlayStation 1s that I know about that could actually support VCD playback were sold in Japan. I don't think there were any that were sold outside of Japan that had that capability, but I could be wrong. Anyway, third-party companies looked at those parallel ports and they saw an opportunity. Some of those third-party companies produced devices that players could plug into a PlayStation and those devices would bypass region locking. So if you were in the United States and you got one of these devices, you could plug it into your PlayStation and then you could get a Japanese game, put it in your system, and you could play games from Japan. Uh, those games would probably be in Japanese. There might not be any translation there. It might be a little bit of a language barrier, but you would sidestep the region locking. You would get access to those games. There were some companies that offered up versions of this hardware that were specifically meant to let you play pirated games on a PlayStation. So these were peripherals that got around copy protection and region locking. Later, Sony would revise the design of the PlayStation and remove the parallel ports, which forced gamers to go an extra step. So what people started doing at that point was they made these little microchips that are called mod chips. They essentially did the same thing as those plug-in devices would do, 
But, you know, those plug-in devices, you would just attach those to a parallel port. For a mod chip to work, you would have to open up your PlayStation, take out the circuit board inside the PlayStation, and then solder the mod chip to a specific location on that circuit board, thus potentially damaging your, your PlayStation as a result, and then reinstall it. And then it would work in a way very similar to those plugins. So if you knew what you were doing, you could get around this region locking and copy protection, but it wasn't for the faint at heart. Now, I'm not crazy about the concept of region locking in general, and I think particularly in the age of streaming, it shouldn't be as big a deal as it is. Although, I also don't have to comb through licensing contracts that are 100 pages long, so different regions have different agreements in place. It is very complicated. In concept, it's simple. Technologically, it's simple to stream something to all different regions, but more on the uh, the procedural side, the legal side, it's way more complicated. Anyway, I don't care for copy protection that punishes legitimate customers either. So if people, and Sony's been really bad about this in the past, if people or companies put in copy protection that makes it harder to enjoy the stuff you legally purchased, that's bad. It actually encourages piracy because people will go an extra step to bypass the bad stuff in order to get to what they want. And then they essentially make it freely available for everyone else. Or very frequently that happens. So this is not a black and white kind of topic. I'm not saying all copy protection is good and all piracy is completely unjustified. I don't think piracy in most cases is justified, but every now and then you come across a case where it's really hard to argue against it especially if you're talking about copy protection that could potentially be harmful. Uh, Sony had a CD-based copy protection that ended up creating a backdoor vulnerability in a computer if you were to put the CD into a PC. That, for example, would be a terrible, terrible thing to do. It was a terrible thing to do. And it's the sort of thing where I would say, yes, absolutely, break that copy protection because it's breaking your computer otherwise. Anyway, this meant that the original PlayStation would be the target of bootleggers, of IP pirates, and folks trading or buying games outside the approved regions. Kutaragi denied that this was a big issue, even though it was undeniably happening, but that might have been because he was already thinking about the PlayStation 2, which would take a slightly different approach to copy protection and eliminate some of the strategies that folks were using during the PlayStation 1. So he was already looking ahead and not so much concerned with what was happening at that moment. So one interesting thing about the mod chip culture is that it launched a sort of seesaw battle between companies like Sony and the mod or hacker community. Sony would make a change to the PlayStation, cutting off options for modders. The modders would then refine their approach and try something new. So for example, early mod chips, when you soldered them into a circuit board, they were always on. So if you powered the PlayStation, the mod chip would also get power, but that gave Sony the chance to create some code that would do sort of a sweep and scan for the presence of mod chips. And if the system detected that there was a mod chip in place, then it would prevent the games from loading. Uh, so then the modders had to go in and build extra chips that would sort of put the mod chip in stealth mode. It would deactivate it during the sweep, and then reactivate it when the sweep was done, which sounds a lot to me like the system Volkswagen had in place for their diesel engine cars, where it would turn off some of the, the output of the engine whenever it was in an emissions testing mode, and it would go back into full blast once the emissions testing mode was over. It's very similar to that. Anyway, one other thing Sony tried to do to fight piracy had to do with the discs themselves. So if you take a PS1 disc and you turn it over, so you're looking at the label at the first part, and you turn it over to look at the business side, you know, the side where the data is actually encoded. If it's an official PS1 game disc, you'll see that that side is black. And the thought was that if you as a gamer were to see a PlayStation 1 disc that wasn't black on the underside, you would know immediately that you were actually looking at a pirated copy. You weren't looking at an official game. You were looking at something that someone had uh, illegally produced and that you would perhaps know better than to go down that dark, dark road and thus consign yourself to a life of video game crime, I guess. 
Secondly, there was a general belief that this black coating would foil pirates, and the assumption was that the average CD drive would not be able to rip data off the black side of a disk, which might have been true for really early CD drives, like the really old ones, but by the time the PlayStation came out, most drives were precise enough that that black coating did not present any kind of challenge. You could totally rip data off of a Sony PlayStation disc. Big games on the original PlayStation included Spyro the Dragon, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, uh, Silent Hill, uh, Metal Gear Solid, that's a huge one, Tomb Raider, Dead or Alive, Resident Evil, and Tekken. Those were all big, big games with the original PlayStation. In April 1997, nearly three years after the PlayStation had debuted in Japan and two after it had arrived in the United States, Sony would release the dual analog controller in North America and other Western markets. And this was the first PlayStation controller to feature two thumbsticks. You still had the four directional buttons on one side of the controller, and you had the four action buttons on the opposite side of the controller, but in between those two and set a little below them were two thumbsticks. So it was this controller that would actually turn me off of PlayStation for a really long time because I always felt that this particular controller was really awkward to hold. It was just a little too cramped, too small. Um, so I, I felt that if I played any game for more than 20 minutes, my hands would just seize up. But the thumbsticks did add a lot of versatility to the PlayStation, and it opened up opportunities for developers to make new types of games to take advantage of those two thumbsticks. So for example, you could have one thumbstick control a character while the second one controlled the camera angle. Or you could use one to control movement and the other to control the direction of a firing weapon like Smash TV. Games like Mech Warrior launched with support for the dual analog controller and helped promote that peripheral. The version that appeared in Japan a few months later included an additional feature not found in the North American version, which was vibration. That in introduced the world to the first dual shock controller. And that gave the controller the ability to provide haptic feedback, that is, touch-based feedback. And that's a feature game developers would use in lots of inventive ways. You want to indicate that a character in a game is anticipating danger? Well, you send a vibration to the controller, and now the player knows something's up. Or you want to send feedback when a player's character is hit by something in the game? You just buzz that controller. Now, the DualShock was not the first controller to feature vibration, because Nintendo actually released the Rumble Pack for the N64 controller in April of that year. That was the same month that the non-vibrating version of the Sony controller launched in the United States. Now, the U.S. would get the upgraded controller in 1998. So why was there a delay? Well, it beats me. I have no idea. I've seen a lot of guesses as to why, but not a definitive answer. So the guesses range between two general approaches. There are a few others, but these are the two big ones. One is, well, Sony needed to get a new controller out because third-party manufacturers were coming up with their own controllers and Sony wanted to make sure that they were the dominant player in that space. But they didn't have the vibration version ready when they were needing to get into the market and compete against these third parties. A similar but slightly different approach, the second of the two arguments, goes that the vibrating controllers were ready, that Sony could have gone with that model, but it would have meant that the controllers would have been more expensive, and thus the third party versions that were on the market would undercut Sony, and so Sony would just waste money producing controllers no one was buying. Either way, the United States didn't get the DualShock vibrating controller until 1998, but once it did, that controller would make an enormous difference, and Sony would quietly discontinue the non-vibrating dual analog version. And while the DualShock would set a standard for PS controllers, it didn't necessarily mean every system would debut with a vibrating controller at launch. More on that in future episodes. So, Sony announced the new console, the PlayStation 2, in 1999, and they launched it in 2000. But the company continued to produce the original PlayStation, or technically a, a redesign of it called the PS1, it was a little smaller than the original console, but otherwise had the same features and capabilities as your standard PlayStation. 
Uh, in fact, Sony kept making the PS1 consoles and publishing games for the PlayStation 1 all the way up until 2006. Now that means that the original PlayStation had a lifespan of more than 11 years from the time it launched in Japan to the time that Sony discontinued production, which is pretty incredible. And it also set a precedent for Sony that the company tried to replicate later. And in 2018, in a nod to the nostalgic gamers out there, Sony released the PS Classic, which is a console with 20 pre-installed PlayStation 1 games on it. Uh, it does not have an optical drive, so unlike the original PlayStation consoles, this one can't accept discs. You're limited to the games that have been hard-coded and preloaded into the system. While Sony would focus a lot of attention on the PS2, the company continued to support the original console and its enormous install base of gamers for many years. But now it's time for us to shift our story to the PlayStation 2 specifically. The PlayStation 2 console would be one of the big players, in fact, the biggest player, in the sixth generation of video game consoles. This was what some would call the 128-bit era of video game consoles. It was also the last time anyone would bother describing consoles in as, you know, having a word size of a certain number of bits because that became less important. But uh, this particular generation of consoles included not just the PlayStation 2, but also the Sega Dreamcast, which launched a couple of years before the PlayStation 2. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite consoles of all time, but it pretty much fizzled in the marketplace. It also includes uh, the Nintendo GameCube in that generation, which is one of my least favorite consoles I've ever owned. And Microsoft's first foray into the world of video game consoles, the original Xbox, was also in the sixth generation. The Dreamcast was the first one to hit shelves, and it did so in Japan in 1998, just one year after Sony introduced the DualShock controller, and two full years before the PlayStation 2 would arrive. So you would think, Sega, you've got two full years to establish a gamer base, a loyal customer base of gamers. You've got the head start on Sony. Surely you couldn't fail. You'd be wrong. Kudaragi again headed up the design process for the sequel to the hottest-selling video game console up to that point, and he was thinking about the PlayStation 2 pretty early on, essentially during the launch of PlayStation 1. He had ideas on how to prevent people from circumventing region locking and copy protection. He had ideas about how the system should support more advanced features, and he had greater ambitions as well. It was his hope to establish a type of technology that would be transferable to other Sony products. So in other words, he wasn't content in just making the best-selling game system in the world. He wanted to establish a framework upon which many different Sony products could stand. He wanted to make a, a sort of universal set of blueprints for basic functionality. I, I like to think of it as kind of the Apple approach with iOS. You know, iOS powers not just the iPhone, but also uh, the iPad and as well as some other Apple products. I think that Kudaragi wanted to do the same thing and have the PlayStation console line sort of serve as the flagship for that. The PS2 wouldn't quite reach that level of ambition, but it would become the top-selling home console of all time. So I think that's a worthy accolade all by itself. One thing the PS2 had that gamers really liked was backwards compatibility. So if you had a PS2, you could play most PS1 games on it in addition to all the PS2 titles. And this was another big reason why Sony would continue to support PS1 development even after the launch of the PlayStation 2, because new PS1 games could find a home either with gamers who had not yet upgraded to the new console, or to gamers who had a PS2, but they still liked playing some of the stuff that was coming out for the older console. They didn't have to switch between consoles in the meantime, right? Even if you had a, play a PlayStation 1 and a PlayStation 2, well, you just hook up the PlayStation 2 to your television because it can play nearly all the games of the PS1, because there were a handful of PS1 titles that did not work on the PS2. You know, like Mortal Kombat Trilogy, or this was a really big one, Metal Gear Solid didn't work on some models of the PS2. That was a big blow. In addition, during the production span of the PS2, Sony actually made lots of different 
versions of the PlayStation 2, a lot of them were indistinguishable externally. Like you could put the two side by side and they would look identical, but inside they'd be slightly different. And some of the times those slight differences would mean that certain games would no longer run on that PS2, certain PS1 games. So the the question about whether or not you could play any particular PS1 game on a PS2 depended on two things. Was it one of the titles that just wasn't supported by PS2 in general? And what model of PS2 did you have? Because it might end up being incompatible with a specific PS1 title. So it was a little complicated. But generally speaking, backwards compatibility was really popular and it was a lauded feature. And it's one of those things that when consoles don't support it, gamers complain because Sony kind of set this precedent and gamers loved that. The PS2 had a new CPU with an unusual name. Sony called it the Emotion Engine. And this CPU included a single core processor, two VPUs, those are vector processing units for graphics. It had a memory controller and an imaging processing unit or an image processing unit, I should say, or an IPU, in other words. And it also had a direct memory access component or DMA. Uh, The architecture design meant that a properly optimized game for the PS2 would have state-of-the-art graphics. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about state-of-the-art circa 2000 here. And that was pretty impressive. The chip ran at nearly 300 megahertz, which is ultra slow by today's standards, but at the time, it was pretty speedy. It had 32 megabytes of RAM plus 4 megabytes of video memory. And unlike the original PlayStation, which was uh, white plastic, this one was black. And it featured a DualShock 2 controller, which refined the design of the previous generation's controller, and it became the real standard from that point forward. I have more to say about the PlayStation 2 in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. The PS2 had a memory card expansion slot. It could support 48 channels of audio. It had two USB ports. It had a FireWire port. Do you guys remember FireWire? You could use that to hook up an an additional drive which was required for certain games. There was a Final Fantasy game that required uh, an additional component or else you just couldn't run it on a standard PS2. Uh, The PS2 also included support for DVD playback. And DVDs had been developed between the time the PS1 had come out and the launch of the PS2. So that gave the PS2 the capability to serve as more than just a game console. It could act as more of an entertainment center which would be greatly expanded upon by future generations of the consoles. In fact, it would become a real point of focus for the Xbox line later uh, that would irritate some gamers who... I remember a certain E3 presentation where people were leaving an Xbox uh, stage event saying, why didn't they talk about games? It's a game system. But this was sort of the beginning of that move to becoming more than a video game console. Now, while the PS2 had the new Emotion Engine CPU, it wasn't an enormous departure from the PS1's operation. Both processors are RISC processors, R-I-S-C. That stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. And this is where being a console can really pay off from sort of an engineering perspective. So if you think about it, a general purpose computer with a regular CPU, it has to be able to do everything pretty well. And that includes running all sorts of different software and different software require different processes. So that means the processor itself has to be able to run a wide spectrum of instructions. But consoles are limited in what they have to do. They don't have to do everything. They just have to do a subset of things really well. And games can come in all sorts of varieties, but the instructions all come from the same basic pool. So if you reduce the variety of instructions that you need to carry out, that means you narrow the scope of what a processor has to do and you simplify things. You rule out all the stuff that the processor's never going to have to handle, and then you optimize the processor to handle the stuff that matters. A RISC processor is capable of multitasking simple instructions. So 
The combination of running programs that consist of simpler tasks, as well as the ability to multitask, means that these processors are really efficient. That translates to us into speed. There's some other technical stuff that we're going to get into. This is where we get super nerdy. But don't worry, I'm going to explain some stuff that I think is is really cool. It's also relevant beyond the PlayStation. But um, this is what gives me my opportunity to totally geek out. So the PS2 has a floating point unit, or FPU. What is that? Well, it's a special processor that handles specific types of complicated mathematic equations. Those usually involve non-integers, numbers that are after a decimal point. And these are called floating point operations because the decimal point can move or, or float depending on the outcome of the calculation. So the complexity of these numbers creates an enormous challenge for the main processor. If it has to handle all those calculations, it'll get bogged down and other stuff will slow down as a result. So to kind of take the pain away for the main processor, you build a specific processor, a floating point unit designed to handle those calculations. Now, you've probably heard about flops in computing. Now, I'm talking about a type of operation. I'm not talking about flops like Microsoft Bob, though that was a heck of a flop. No, flops in this case refer to the speed with which the FPU can process these calculations. It actually stands for floating point operations per second. A gigaflop would be 1 billion of those. The PS2's FPU is a 6.2 gigaflop FPU, so it can perform 6.2 billion floating point operations in one second. The PS2 has a component called the graphics synthesizer, which is in charge of stuff that includes, and I love these terms, guys, strap yourselves in, Bezier surfacing, alpha channel, uh, perspective correction, MIP mapping, I swear I didn't make any of these up here. I'm, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll prove it. We'll go through these. So let's start with Bezier surfacing. That's a 3D modeling process. And the whole point of the process is it breaks down how many polygons, how many simple shapes do you need to create a three-dimensional object within a game, right? Think of something like, I don't know, a car. Well, the the more smooth you want that car, the more individual tiny little polygons you're going to need to represent that car. And Bezier servicing bases the number on the level of, of detail necessary to make the object appear to be smooth to the viewer. And that number can change depending upon perspective. The PS2 only performs these calculations on Bezier surfaced objects that are in the game. So not all objects are designated as Bezier surfaced objects. And perspective correction makes the texture map resize at the same rate as the object that is mapped, that the uh, texture map appears on. Uh, texture maps are images, like, and it's pretty much what it sounds like. Just think of a texture and then think of repeating that texture over and over and over across all the surfaces of an object in order to make it look like it's made out of whatever that stuff is, like wood or stone or, I don't know, dog fur. The PS2 has that alpha channel I mentioned. What's that? Well, that's to add transparency effects to an object. And it's a special graphics mode that's used by digital video, animation, and video games to make this happen. Uh, they use 24 bits to define the amounts of red, green, and blue. Each of those get eight bits that are needed to create a specific color. And another eight bits are used to create a grayscale mask that acts as a separate layer for representing levels of object transparency. The degree of that transparency is completely determined by how dark the gray in that alpha channel is. If you make an area of that mask dark gray, you can make an object appear to be very transparent. So it can be like a ghost. If you do light gray, you can create other sorts of effects like water effects or fog effects. What about MIP mapping? This is the one that sounds the most fake, right? It kind of sounds like a, the noise that the those Muppets make on Sesame Street. MIP mapping, MIP mapping. Did I lose you all guys? Because that's it's great. It's a great character. Anyway, it's a form of texture mapping in which different sizes of each texture map are made. What does that mean? Okay, so... 
imagine you've got an image that represents a texture, right? It's a, it, it's a picture of a cinder block very close up. So you've got that texture of a cinder block as a picture. Well, with map mapping, you have different sizes of that texture image. And it's so that when you get closer or further away from a virtual object in a game, the texture that you see will match the distance you're at. So it won't look weird. Like you won't have a close-up view of that cinder block texture when the cinder block is really far away. But here's the problem. You can't make a texture map for every possible distance your character or your point of view will have from a virtual object. That's just way too much, right? So if we were thinking in terms of feet, which doesn't really apply in the virtual world, but just stick with me, let's say that you have texture maps that are equivalent to being three feet away, six feet away, or 12 feet away from the same object. And if you're further than 12 feet away, you don't see the texture because you're not, you're not close enough to get that detail. Your virtual character, let's say that they are nine feet away from this object. So they're in between two of those image sets, right? The six feet and the, and the 12 feet. So what do you do? Well, with MIP mapping, what it does is it takes the values for six feet and it takes the values of 12 feet, runs a mathematic application in order to determine what size that texture map should be for nine feet and then displays it on the object. So that way, by having a few benchmarks, you can use those benchmarks to estimate the right size of that texture map for whatever virtual distance you are from that object. And it saves a lot of memory. You don't have to have, you know, a, an infinite number of different texture maps in order to represent objects, you know, realistically. And it doesn't compromise too much on that realistic value. So that way things still look good in your game. It's a really clever way of fixing that problem. And uh, the goal is always to use the smallest texture map possible, given the distance that the object is from the viewer, because the smaller the texture map, the lower the processing load. So you have to have this balance between the size of the texture map versus the virtual distance of your character to the object, and also the effect you want to have. Because if you're on a close object, small texture maps create sort of a grainy surface that looks really bad. So you want to use larger texture maps when you're close. So there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration. And clearly that needs to happen all on an automated side in the background. Now, one day we're, got, we're done with the super technical stuff, by the way. So wake up. We're going to get back into the story here. One day after launching the PS2 in Japan, Sony sold nearly 1 million units. Now, re remember, the PlayStation 1 sold 300,000 units in the first 30 days. The PS2 sold 980,000 units one day after launch in Japan. That's incredible. The new system cost the same as a DVD player around that time. Uh, it actually cost around $299, which was the same price tag as the original PlayStation back in 1995. That one launched at $299. However, when we adjust for inflation, there is a difference. If we adjust for inflation, it would mean that a, P a brand new PS2 bought with today's dollars, if it were the priced the same as it was back in 2000, would cost about 450 bucks today. A PS1 would be more expensive because it came out in 1995. So if we adjust for inflation, that's about $500. Anyway, since most DVD players cost around $300 or more in 2000, because they were relatively new technology, it meant that some consumers opted for a PS2 over a standard DVD player, because if they both cost the same amount, why would you not go and buy the one that also lets you play games on it? Go and get a DVD player that can also play games. It makes sense. Sony had really positioned the PS2 well, and it paid off big time. Sales quickly outpaced Sega's Dreamcast system, which again faded away in 2001, which meant that for about half a year, Sony was the only company that had a sixth generation console on the market. The Dreamcast was gone, and the GameCube and the original Xbox wouldn't come around until late 2001. So for half of 2001, the PlayStation 2 was the only game console in town. Nintendo and Microsoft would be left fighting over second place, 
Microsoft would squeak out a win over Nintendo. But even if you added the total number of sales of the Xbox to the total number of sales of the GameCube, you would just hit maybe a third of the total sales of the PS2. The PS2 ultimately sold 155 million units. It is the best-selling home video game console so far. Sony was able to get really aggressive with its pricing as well, because in 2002, they dropped the price tag from $299 to $199 in an effort to compete more with the GameCube and to undercut the Xbox. Now, like the PS1, Sony would continue to support the PlayStation 2 for a really long time. It launched in 2000, and Sony would halt production in late 2012, early 2013, which is pretty phenomenal, considering that the PS3 came out in 2006. For like seven years while the PS3 was out, Sony was still making PS2s and and still publishing PS2 games. That's amazing. That would make the PS2 the last of the major sixth-generation consoles to go out of production. The Dreamcast was first, may it rest in peace, because it died in 2001. The GameCube followed, but lasted until 2007. The original Xbox stayed in production until 2009, and everyone else had moved on when Sony was still supporting the PS2. Of course, it was simultaneously producing, promoting, and selling the PS3, but that's a console we're going to talk about in our next episode. And that one's really interesting for both good and bad reasons. Something else we'll talk more about in our next episode will be online capabilities. So when Sony first launched the PS2, that console didn't really have any way to connect online, which is interesting because Sega's Dreamcast did have ports that let you connect to the internet if you wanted to, but the PS2 didn't have that. It wouldn't be until Microsoft unveiled the Xbox Live online feature that Sony got really serious about online gaming. And that's when the company released an adapter that players could connect to a PS2 in order to give it online capabilities. Kutaragi would take this into account when he was working on the design for the PS3, which technically he had been doing since the launch of the PS2, or maybe even before that. Like the PS1, Sony would release redesigns of the PS2, some with smaller and sleeker form factors. The company also saw some problems meeting demands, and not all of those were the fault of Sony's manufacturing processes. For example, in the Suez Canal, there was a Russian oil tanker that got stuck, and it ended up blocking the passage of a Chinese freight ship that was carrying a vital supply of PS2 units that were bound for Britain. So there were many British gamers who spent many a night wondering when the heck they'd be able to get their little mitts on a PS2. Well, that wraps up this episode about the PlayStation 2. I'll have a little bit more to say about the PS2 in our next episode, and then we'll move on to talk about the PlayStation 3. And it's innovative and somewhat difficult CPU system uh, that had a lot of promise and also ended up causing a lot of headaches. But I'll explain more about that in our next episode. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, get in touch with me. You can let me know on Twitter or Facebook. We use the handle TechStuffHSW at both. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 